This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Amina is a sex doula and intimacy coach, and she's one of the experts in Goop's Netflix show, Sex, Love, and Goop, which is all about sex and relationships. On the show, Amina works with a couple who believe that they have a desire mismatch. They meet with Amina, who introduces them to play. As she so wisely states on the show, it's time to acknowledge that sex is how we play as adults. In her Atlanta-based practice, Amina helps Black women see themselves. Her work is rooted in intentionality, existing consciously, and clearing sexual shame, guilt, and fear. Amina is an incredible teacher, and it was a pleasure getting to talk to her about arousal, desire, shame, pleasure, and making space for tenderness within our sexual experiences. If you want to dive in deeper, the team at Goop has gathered some of their favorite tools for intimacy, sex, and connection. Head to goop.com backslash podcast sex to check it out. Okay, let's get to my chat with Amina. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. I have loved learning about your work through the show, and there's so much I want to dive into. But I think it's always best to start at the beginning. And I'm really curious about how you found yourself in this work. What really drew you to it? Mm, Okay. Yeah. Just jump right on in. (laughs) Uh, I started um, this work. Actually, I found myself answering an ad in a newspaper in the Chicago Reader in the 90s. And it was an ad for a sexual circuit. 
And I didn't know what that was, but it had the pay rate. And so I perked up and said, I was in the military at the time and I was in college and I was working at Marshall Fields and I was, I felt like I had jobs everywhere and this looked like it would be one job and a lot less stress. (laughs) So I, um, I, I applied for it and I went over and met the psychologist that was running the program and, and started working under him at the time. So that was, that was my introduction to the work. Since that moment, it's been a windy road where I found myself kind of um, taking breaks, many breaks, navigating my own relationship with sex and shame and guilt and spirit and all that I've learned about what sex is supposed to be in, in the body and sacredness. And so there's there had been some breaks and some pauses, but I kept finding myself coming back into work that was sexuality centric. And in 2003, I went to massage therapy school. And when I completed massage therapy, my massage therapy program, I went back into sex work shortly thereafter, uh, learning about Tantra and, and Tantra massage was, was a buzzword then that made me crack open some books. I didn't know where you could go and study. And you know, there was a program. So I just started opening books and nerding out over Tantra and sacred sexuality and works from people who had been doing the work for a while. And I learned about sexological body work and body electric and, and just, you know, just kind of rolled over from there. So it's been a beautiful evolution to this point, but that's how it started. Something you just said really caught me. This idea of what you thought sex was supposed to be or what you were taught sex was supposed to be. What did you mean by that? So there are a couple, a few different things that stand out. And one was that I identify as queer, so I, but I grew up in a space where sex was between a man and a woman only. And even though I still date men, I, that other part of me was something that I had to really navigate. And as I was doing this work, which was really only with men, There was a bit of almost feeling erased, a part of me, like really not being able to be fully myself even further. So there was that. Um, Also learning about spiritual value of sex that, you know, by by having sex, there's some sort of spiritual connection that can't be that is now sacred. And so that sex has to be saved for, for people who are in sacred relationships with you. Um, whether that's marriage or long-term, you know, monogamous-centric ideology. That was kind of where, what I had learned about, like, how, where sex happens, how sex is supposed to happen in those places. And then the way in which sex was supposed to happen, who is supposed to do what to get sex and how those steps went. Um, you know, we, we really are in a, like, first base, second base, third base home progress of sex still as a nation, like no matter how far from seventh grade we get, that's still kind of the root of it. And so it's like, well, now I've touched this. So I'm on my way to it's progressional sex. And and that someone is supposed to initiate and that person is typically the aggressor, oftentimes the more masculine one. So me being in charge of sex as a femme presenting woman doesn't 
um, that wasn't lining up. And so there, and then also I'm selling it now. So all of this is really conflicting with what I've been taught and how sex is supposed to look for me. You just touch on this idea of seventh grade being this place where kind of all these agreements around sex or our sexual identity maybe begin. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about sex and shame and if any of your thoughts about shame connect to that time, you know, that kind of formidable time where we are trying to understand who we are in our bodies and we're getting a lot of different messages, including the messages that are coming up in our own bodies. Yeah, I think that's it's such a that that's seventh and eighth grade period to me. And even when I watch my nieces and nephews all coming up, my nibblings all coming up in that space right now, that it's it's still kind of it repeats, right? There's this this time where puberty is happening. So there's an immense transformation that's happening in the body. And in this transformation, no one's talking about it. No one's celebrating it. So the society implies that it's not supposed to happen. When you start walking, everybody's there to clap. Yay, you walk. When you start speaking full sentences, people are really there to celebrate that this part of your evolution. When you start getting breast, that's nobody's celebrating. The people we we don't have that culture in 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 the West where we say, "Oh, congratulations!" Wow, that's that's a sign that you're stepping into adulthood. We don't have rites of passages. So, as a collective, we end up automatically with this space of shame because nobody's supposed to talk about it. And then there's like this quiet space you go to, and then it's just your friends, um, really that that are left to talk. And so now it's kind of like the blind leading the blind. We're all you know, 12 and 13 year olds, what do we know? And then we move into how to have sex from that space. And that's everything about that moment is really like wrapped in shame. I remember, you know, being a young girl around young menstruating women for the first time and there being all this like fear that someone would smell you because that's what the boys would talk about is the smell of women. And we we know that smell is the smell of menstruation, but there was just, there's no conversations about it. So there's a sexual part of you that you just, you know, you hope no one notices and you tuck it away and you close your legs tight and hope no one smells you and that you can still be desirable enough to be cool. We don't have a space where that gets resolved. We haven't created spaces for, for the resolution of that. And so we carry it into adulthood, into our relationships. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. 
on the show on sex, love and goop, you said something that really stuck with me that I also really believe and practice myself is this idea, or I think you said, can't we all acknowledge that sex is how we play as adults? Mm -hmm. And when I heard that, I was just like, yeah, it is a place of play. It is, it can be a game. It can have all of these layers to it. It is a form of recreation. And I think also as a, as a gay person, queer person, and coming out later in life, I feel like I've really gotten this opportunity, like in my thirties to really understand how much play is actually available after kind of breaking out of like the hetero context uh, and everything that kind of came with it. Not to say that a hetero context is limiting for play, but I think for someone who is not in their correct orientation, this new stage I'm in really is creating that, that language of play. I do think that heteronormativity is limiting in play. I'll, I'll say it. You don't have to say it. I think it is. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, it's penis centric. And so that doesn't create space for a lot of play because uh, in friction sex, the penis will ultimately ejaculate and then the playtime is over. And so there's, it's automatically limited just based on that principle alone. And so when we decenter penis in sex, whether it's heteronormative, whether it's heterosexual sex, whatever, and you're decentering penis, then you have space for play. And that sometimes I can say this as a coach is a hard sell to people who have penises because they live in a society that centered them this whole time. And so here I come saying, <laughs> saying no, we are going to um, take, take this function away and play with the rest of the body. As we take in this space where we're decentering the, the penis, we, we are actually embodying the entire body. There's more pleasure in it for the man also. There's more pleasure in it for the heterosexual couple because now you can play. But there's something that we've done culturally, which is really diminish the value of children and of child's play of children's voices. And so there's some ageism that shows up to bite us in the ass. Like if we say that children and all this playfulness is frivolous and not of any value and not in any way healing or not in any way appropriate and just a phase that we're waiting for them to grow out of instead of enjoying it with them, then we can't play Ever. We, we're just waiting to get to this point where we can be stiff, stern adults. And that's not, that's not it. That's not what we, that's not, that doesn't bring any joy or pleasure to any of us. So how can we start to play in sex, with sex, with that connection with ourselves and with a partner or partners, if, if we have them, where's the starting point? Uh, the first thing is just to stop taking it all so seriously, you know? There's way too much seriousness in this whole sexual space that we've created. It's like once we start playing around and really um, like dropping our ego off at the door and letting ourselves be a little less serious about it, then we can start to play. Um, but if not, then it won't work. So that's the first that's the first starting point It's like just ask yourself, why am I so serious about this? We have sex with somebody um, and then there's all these rules that sometimes we're making up while we're having sex, before we're having sex. And definitely after now, we got even more rules to talk about. And that doesn't feel very playful. So letting go of some of the stuff that you think has to be there for sex. I can only have sex with the person if I'm in this context and if the relationship looks like this. And if like 
those things do not allow for much um, freedom of playfulness because now you have all these rules that you got to make sure somebody's honoring and that doesn't necessarily create space for playfulness and for fun and for flow. So that's the first thing, like just to really get into a space where, where the seriousness does, it doesn't have to be so heavy. Um, and then just be silly, try being silly, maybe not even in sex. Maybe just try actually playing with your partner outside of the sexual context to see if that even is, like, can you be playful? Because if not, you're not going to, it's not going to work in the bedroom if you just show up and like, all right, let's be silly and playful now. We haven't been telling you, we're only serious all day. We're both type A personalities all day. And now we're in the bed. Let's be playful. That won't work either. So really inviting your partner to play and inviting playfulness into your space and as a regular occurrence and something that you do, being silly, having space for mistakes. And speaking about seriousness, it makes me think about mirror work, which is something that has definitely been a part of my emotional practice for a very long time and not even having a specific focus on what it was providing me sexually, but just really being able to be in front of myself and sit with myself and you know, when I was watching the show and I was, you know, really watching the scene where you were taking her through, you know, mirror work, it was so powerful. I think culturally for me as a Black woman and also, you know, being first gen, there is kind of an innate sense of pride that I was kind of given about my body. It's hard to know when that started or what I was told, but Something was given to me a long time ago that said to me, your body is sacred. It is important, regardless of what it is that you're doing with it. And so when I say, you know, thinking about seriousness makes me think about mirror work because I do feel like there is there is some gravity to that work. There is an intensity in, in seeing yourself and showing up in that way, not because you're putting on an outfit or getting your hair done or just trying to check yourself before you leave, but saying, no, I'm. I'm really going to be here and just watch what shows up. And so I'm curious how you suggest someone approach mirror work and be able to kind of balance the kind of seriousness and sacredness that is so present and almost necessary in that exercise, but then to be able to also tap into that softness and that silliness that can also, and in my opinion, kind of needs to be there too. How do you, how do you kind of find both, especially for folks who are like really intimidated by it? Softness and laughter and playfulness is also sacred. And I think sometimes we forget that because every image that we have of the sacred is just very somber. It's very upright and dry. And you, you should not, you know, like if you went to any church, any Catholic church, especially, you're not supposed to laugh or smile in service. And that loosens up a little bit in the Baptist church. But when we get into sacred ritual, you still, it's still the same. And so you just see this over and over again, that this new, um, and it's new, it's relatively new, the last few thousand years of what is sacred is very serious. And the body is sacred. We are sacred beings. So, so is my laughter. So is my joy. And so to go into it with that idea, like I'm looking at myself with love and light and seriousness and playfulness, like 
all of creating space for all of these realities of the body when you look at yourself and um you know sometimes it's sometimes you smile back you're you know my butt has dimples so my cheek has a dimple so we should see them both at the same time it's a simple way to be more playful like all right there's not the only dimples right and or whatever the case may be where like you're just not like you're seeing it but you don't have to see it you don't have to see your body you don't have to see it as in only the lens of, of seriousness but you can be serious like this is a serious thing Oh, but I like that. That's fun. Oh, that looks good. Can I move this like this? Okay. All right. That's fun. Um, you know, I do mirror work and we we twerk in the mirror. So, so there's this, right? There. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so there's space for, for light and playful and, and admiration and adoration, right? Like all of that is available in, in, in a mirror work exercise or practice. And just rem- reminding yourself also just, Playfulness is sacred. And one of the things, like if that if that concept is a struggle for you, then I suggest that you go sit by a playground and watch children play and watch what freedom looks like because ultimately freedom is the most sacred thing. And in that moment, as children play, they are as free as they can be typically. So it can just remind you about your own inner child and allowing her to be, allowing them to be present for you. I love that. And when you're doing mirror work, do you think it's worth speaking out loud to yourself, saying your own name, or do you just let whatever comes up in your mind come up? Because I really feel what's been the most powerful for me with mirror work is actually just saying, hey, Erica, you are enough. Mm -hmm. You are beautiful. I've had fibroids and there was a time when my body just really didn't feel like my own. And I had to really just look in the mirror and say like, you know what, like your body is still beautiful. Like even Mm -hmm. after like a surgery and. Absolutely. I um, am a big fan of speaking to ourselves and our names that we want to be called in this moment, which is really also important for people who are trans for them to really connect with their body and their their image with the name that they desire instead of the name that maybe they're faced with or the dead name that that keeps coming back up. It's really important work to to really say your own name. Um, And when doing inner child work to actually refer to the name of your childhood. So that's different, which for me, it's different. You know, as a kid growing up, I was Chrissy. So when I look at myself in the mirror and I'm doing inner child work, I'm going to do some healing for my little girl that, you know, missed something that was told something that was a lie. I go and I talk to Chrissy. And if I'm talking to this grown woman that's before you now, I'm talking to Amina. And so and I, I make a distinction when I when I begin to have conversation and when I ask questions and both of those people are still me, you know, this is, first name, middle name, but they're both still me. It's just how, you know, I remember certain things being said after Chrissy that I have to undo, I have to unlearn. And I remember, I know there are things now that I'm learning and the constant reprogramming that is affecting Amina today. And so I have to make sure that happens. I also say my full name often so that 
I step into all of these names that I have been given from my mother and from my ancestors and my lineage. Like I want to acknowledge all of that too. So yeah, I think that it's really important to, to speak to yourself in that direct way. Like I'm calling to myself. I'm having this conversation with me. What's your advice for someone that's struggling with arousal and desire? And would you mind sharing a little bit about the difference between the two? Desire is, there's, there's, there's some longing in that word desire, right? There's some craving. So when I think of, when I hear desire, I hear like, I want something. Arousal is the thing that I would, that, that tells me that I'm available for something. It's that tingle, that's, it's a sensation. Um, it's a, it's an expansion of energy. So that, that, that lets me know that, that I'm, that I'm alive and this is a possibility. And I say that, and I think it's really important for people to understand that because rape culture has taught us that arousal must be answered. That there must be a response to arousal. And so people struggle with just experiencing arousal, which is really, really unfortunate to me. I think that we really have an opportunity in the experiencing of arousal to get to know ourselves and get to know what we desire and get to know the differences in the types of arousal that we may experience. That's first. Um, and as far as like, if you're, if that's something that you're struggling with, again, I just go back to what I said about like, I no one wants to go to a job they don't like. And so you have to figure out where your pleasure is. You have to learn what brings you pleasure which means you have to pause and experience life. You have to pause and sit in the sensations that life, life is presenting to you and start to get to know where your pleasure is, what things bring you pleasure. And then you start to realize where they're missing, right? But if every time you have sex, it is amazing and mind-blowing, you can't wait to get back to it. It, there's this like, you know, a really good cup of ice cream or something. Like I want some more one day, like soon, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but if it's not, then it's not. And uh, this, this, this oftentimes hits hard because people are like, well, my lover doesn't want to, does that mean me? And, and yes, yes, it does. It means you and your partner need to work on figuring out where your pleasure is and what that looks like that you can make those offerings to each other and they feel good. Now, sometimes there are things that are in the way of pleasure, pleasure blocks, right? Like you mentioned stress um, and those stresses can come from all over the place. Lack of energy, right? Depression can present as as a block. Anxiety can present as a block. There's now I don't have the capacity to, to discover pleasure. So that requires some work with, with some additional work, right? That's why I do a lot of work with, with therapists, working side by side with therapists. There's a lot of ways in which blockages can show up that may make us feel like it's libido, but really at the end of the day, libido is a term that's a collection of symptoms. And so you start to look at what the things are that is limiting your desire. And when you start to address and work on those things, which is why when people come to see a sex coach or, um, or you know, an intimacy guide, they're confused when I'm giving them a list of other things to do. They're like, oh, I thought I was just going to get some tips on how to ride better or how to do this better. And it's, it's, it, that's not where it's mm-hmm. at. That's, yeah, it's, it's, you got to get to a space where you have space to enjoy sex. 
but we've created in your body a safe space for you to enjoy a sexual experience. And that may be not learning how to ride. (laughs) In fact, it's probably not learning how to ride. You also talk about sex as medicine. Yeah, of course. Um, Well, I want to start that it's widely accepted that addiction and sex are not a thing, that there are some addictive properties that, that some things that look like addiction, some actions that we have that may look like addiction, but it's widely accepted in, in the scientific community and in the, um, uh, in the psychology and psychiatry community that there is no such thing as a false addiction. There are some outliers, but that is just one I want to start with that because it's important. And it's important when we talk about sex as medicine and then we think about the potential for addiction to this medicine. And one of the things that happens, and I think we really got to see this over the last couple of, the last year and eight months, right? Since, since the global pandemic started, that we, without touch, our body chemistry changes. Without certain interaction, our body chemistry changes. And a lot of the chemistry, a lot of the body's chemistry that gets altered is available to us in pill form. And and I'm very grateful that that's available. But there's also, we know this scientifically, also we have the opportunity to experience some of these uh, neurochemicals, the the, the, uh, neurotransmission of chemicals from sex. And by sex, I don't just mean like gentle intercourse, I mean the entire energetic exchange of sex from hugging to kissing to um, holding each other to having your body to body. There are things that are released that that we have, as the scientific community has learned to bottle up, that the pharmacology has learned to create an appeal because we won't all have access to that. It's not a fix all, right? But, the, but we do know that the body produces um, dopamine um, in, a, in, in response to sexual stimulation and that serotonin is released and, and, and oxytocin is released. And so these are all things that, that help keep us balanced. So when I say sex is medicine, um, and I first heard that from Debbie Ward at, at Authentic Institute of Tantra, when I first heard that, I was like, yeah, you know what, this is true. And so I started looking into um, a little more of the science of sex and some of the work of, you know, uh, some of the shoulders that sex, sex education and sexology stand on, like Masters and Johnson and some of the sensate focus work where they're really measuring the quantifiable medical value of sex and sex intersection and, and intercourse. And we can't deny that. And so it bothers me that it's not taught in biology. It bothers me that we take these classes on biology and that no one at any point brings up how powerful and amazing our bodies are at healing themselves. Having sex when you're on your period minimizes cramps. That's real medicine. Of course I could take ibuprofen, but ibuprofen can get expensive. What if I just had this thing that I have inside of me and then I was working on that? Like, what if I just masturbated and had an orgasm? It's, we're so terrified of sex that we can't really have these conversations yet in mainstream, it's changing. But sex is absolutely medicine. And it's also medicine for the community because we make babies doing this. 
Um, this is also how we grow in love and expand our community. That is medicine also. And like there's so many ways that sex shows up as medicine um, from how we um, move and stretch. There's opportunities to, you know, arch your back and point your toes, as Miguel says. And so we got we have a chance to, <laughs> to really have all types of adaptive medicine in this in this. There's so much richness here that I hope will only further support people who are learning about you, learning about your work through the show. And it's exciting to be able to actually have these types of conversations, but then also to be able to tangibly see, see it in the world. And I really think that your approach is so tender and inviting. And I just love talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. I think we all could use a little more tenderness in such a such a space that I feel like has been rubbed raw for many of us. It is time for us to come back into our bodies. And, and that requires softness. Thanks for tuning into my conversation with Amina Peterson. Be sure to catch her on Goop's Netflix show, Sex, Love and Goop. And go to goop.com backslash podcast sex to explore Goop's intimacy toolkit. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.